Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is May the 20th, 2016, and this is episode uh, 1791 of the Survival Podcast. That's right, and you know what day it is. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. That That's right. It is time for your questions to the expert council to send a question in for expert council members. Put TSPC, TSPC expert in the subject line and tell me who your question is for. We've got some great stuff for you today. I got an update for you on the granddaddy's gun club. Some of you have been asking about that. And I'll save till we get to there to tell you about that. I also have a question for Nick Ferguson today. On dealing with poor drainage and water holding areas and to pond it or not to pond it. Right? There's a couple to ponder two or not two questions today, and that is one of them. A overdue update from the Duke of Permaculture himself, Paul Wheaton of Wheaton Labs in Montana. He is back and uh He's been out and down with uh, damage to a disc in his neck. And for about a month, I think he was flat horizontal. Uh, glad to have Paul back. He's going to give us an update because even though he was down and out, because he's built a hell of a community up at Wheaton Labs, things have been going forward. And they've made some real progress building their community up in northwestern Montana. Uh, also have a, call, a, a caller that's like, I got fish coming out of my ears. I grow tilapia, I go fishing, I got all kinds of fish everywhere. And wants Keith Snow to say, okay, what can I do other than like deep fry or grill these things with butter? Give me some other ideas for using fish, so you'll probably be hungry after that one. We have a question for Steve Harris. Why do good batteries go bad? And I don't mean in the way that, like, the battery was good, now it doesn't work. I mean, like, you open up your electronic device because it's not working, you think you need to change the batteries, and you look in there, and there's this nasty crud, and the battery has corroded all over your device, and it sometimes ruins it, and you feel like your head wants to blow up and your brain wants to come out of your eyes. Why does that happen, and what can we do about it? Stephen Harris, expert on all things energy, will weigh in on that. Our other two or not to question, to swale or not to swale? That is indeed the question many of us have, and many of us get addicted to the idea of swales with food forestry and growing our own food and pasture management and things like that. It's not always the right choice. I've talked about it before, but I figured it'd be good to get another person to talk about this this time. Ben Falk will be answering a question on that. And then maybe the most important question we'll hear an answer to this month on the Survival Podcast. John Pugliano weighing in. Why and how do pension funds go bankrupt? This is something I think a lot of people feel like, well, my pension fund must be safe, especially if it's a state or a city or a, a government pension fund. How could they go broke? They take our money, they put it in the, in the fund, and then, and then we get money back. Well, how does it go bankrupt? How does it go broke? How does it go bust? It's not possible, is it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. John actually goes a little long on the allowance that I give for time, but I don't care because this is an important one to understand because you may be seeing the how play out a lot in the coming next decade. You really might. There's a lot of pension funds out there in deep, deep poo, 
so to speak. And the last one is for me. I have gotten tons of questions over the years and tons this spring. And it's some version of, I have a garden I put in. I'm trying to grow vegetables to feed myself and my family, and my plants are sad. Uh, they are deformed. They are malformed. They have lots of stuff eating them. They're yellow. They have spots on them. They're not doing well. They're unhappy. And they're not growing the way they're supposed to. And everybody else's are beautiful. All the pictures everybody else puts online, their gardens are doing great. That's because people generally show you what's going well. But I wrote an article yesterday. Uh, it made the show come out really late because I felt this needed to be done this spring. And if I didn't do it yesterday, it wasn't going to happen for a while. On like the easy way to solve 90% of your problems in the garden. 90%. Now, it's an interesting thing because... It is a starting point for establishing new beds, and we go into more intensive practices over time. But what I'm going to give you today is no more sad yellow plants that don't grow. No more. And no more plants that are just T-boned by pests. Like This will not fix your pest problems, but when you have a sad plant and the pests just T-bone it, that's because it's a sad plant. And I'll tell you why it's a sad plant uh, most of the time. This won't fix, again, everything, but 90% or more. And I'll tell you what happens when it becomes a sad plant and why the pests are like, oh, let's go eat that. All of that and more coming up in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. With that knocked out, let's get some historical perspective and look at the year that was the episode. I have today two from Alex Shrugged at TSP Wiki. I have the rights of man and two old ladies. And I have the Indians' victory and St. Clair's defeat. And in other news, here comes the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Congress imposes a tax on distilled spirits, and the Whiskey Rebellion is but a few years away. Vermont is admitted as the 14th state. It separated itself from New York 14 years ago thanks to Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. The United States Bill of Rights is ratified. 12 articles are voted on, 10 are accepted, becoming the Bill of Rights. And the Brandenburg Gate is completed, a symbol of peace. In modern times, it will serve as a checkpoint between West and East Germany as a symbol for the Berlin Wall. I'm going to read the, um, the rights of man and two old ladies. As Easter approaches, the stuff is about to hit the fan. By law, the clergy must make an oath supporting the French Constitution, or they are forbidden to say Mass. The law also nationalizes, nationalizes much of the Catholic property in France. Nationalize means confiscate. Remember that when you hear a, a politician say they want to nationalize something. It means take over, confiscate, absolutely. Only a few bishops and about half the priests recite the oath. Non-oath takers are threatened with violence, because that's all the state has, just saying. 
The king's two elderly aunts are traditional Catholics and decide to travel to Rome and attend Easter services. But the people are out of control, so the two aunts require an escort of mounted infantry to travel. Nevertheless, they are waylaid and held for ten days as their legal defense explains that the new constitution guarantees the freedom of travel. The National Assembly actually debates the issue as to whether or not two old ladies can travel to Rome to attend church services. They arrive in Rome and decide to take world tour. They have escaped in June. The king and queen make a run for it, too, dressed in plain clothes and traveling as commoners. They are caught and imprisoned. My take by Alex Shrug. First, the justification for used for arresting the king's aunts was enforcement of the separation of church and state. Apparently, forcing people to attend state-approved church was required for a better democracy. If you think that a democracy cannot possibly interfere with your right to practice your religion, think again. I'm Jewish, that's Alex Shrugged, and I know the state is trying to interfere with my religious practices. And it's not due to crazy Christians or wild-eyed Muslims, but secular people who think my religious practices are primitive and cruel. All I have to say to them is, F you, forget you. Secondly, the French nobility was fleeing France because of a building threat. Thomas Paine had just published The Famous Rights of Man in response to criticism of violence of the French Revolution. Technically speaking, was a brilliant piece of logic, but reality interfered. Thomas Jefferson was similarly embarrassed. Yeah, um, we're going to see a lot more coming in France over the few years following, and it will get pretty nasty. Um, the United States Revolution uh, gave a lot of people hope that they could have a revolution that might turn out the way ours did, and most of them did not. Um, revolutions are often bloody and violent, and not just during, but in the aftermath. And they have, in history, seldom gone well. And that is because what you have in a revolution is one group of tyrants are ousted, and a new set of tyrants are installed. Because people figure a change must be better than what we have now. And often changes can be far worse. And it's often the case that people in a revolution cannot conceive of actually having more liberty. People have revolutions because they're just unhappy, they're pissed off, they want more of something. Uh, but generally it's not because they want more freedom, they want more of something. And when you want more of something, that generally means someone else has to have less of the same thing, and therefore you want to redistribute property. That's, that is actually the catalyst for most revolutions. And intelligent people, who are psychopaths, will rise up and point to the, the person in power and say it's their fault you don't have what you want, And they will organize violence, and they will use organized violence against other organized violence, and then they will have a war. And if they win, they will then have themselves installed as the victors so that everything can be better. And then they will begin to commit new forms of tyranny. The United States is one of the few times where a completely new form of government was enacted, and the rights were actually put in the hands of the people. People saw that, and they were inspired by it, but it didn't mean it would always work out. In the words of the, uh, the Beatles, you say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Um, you, say, you say you got a real solution. Well, you know, we'd all love to see the plan. You ask me for a contribution, well, you know, we're all doing what we can. In other words, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of this because it's going to lead to violence. And 
in general, I believe the reason most revolutions actually tend to install greater tyrants is because people don't understand why they're revolting. And they're, all they're doing is installing a new apparatus of control. Where if we actually had an intellectual insurrection, an action-based insurrection, a separation from the apparatus of control, which is what I try to promote here by thinking, we could actually begin to render defunct many of the apparatuses of control and begin to disassemble and dismantle them. But one can hope, and one can hope that we take that course rather than one of bloodshed. With that, before we get to uh, your first stuff uh, for feedback today, let's go ahead and hear about the Bob Wells plant of the week. Every week, Bob Wells gives us a plant that we can uh, grow in our own backyards to provide food for us season after season. Today's plant of the week is the pawpaw tree, also called the custard apple. because the delicious taste of vanilla custard. The tree grows to about 25 feet. Fruit is three to six inches long, and they work best if you plant two for pollinators. Some people refer to the pawpaw as a miracle fruit and attribute their good health to it. The tree makes an attractive ornamental tree as well. Pawpaw plants are easy to grow. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape. Fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at bobwellsnursery.com. I have not succeeded in growing pawpaws here. I do have one tree that looks kind of happy this year. We'll see how it does. The alkaline soil, the heat, not really things that it's fond of. This is a tree native mostly to the northeastern United States. It likes somewhat acidic forest soils. It likes some shade, not too much. Uh, and it likes cool and moist areas to grow. So keep that in mind as you try to grow your pawpaw trees. If you're going to do it down here in the south, seek a suitable microclimate. So just a real quick update. Um, had some people asking me how things are going with Granddaddy's Gun Club. And my first suggestion would be, We'll go to granddaddiesgun.com and join and be part of it, and you'll you'll know. Uh, but we've got some good stuff going on both, uh, you know, in the front side and in the back side at the same time. So, Granddaddy's Gun Club, for those that haven't heard about it before, is designed to further gun rights by instilling the tradition of handing down firearms from one generation to the next. It's not just for men, even though it's called the Granddaddy's Gun Club. All are welcome. And the concept is that we'll set up local clubs throughout the country, and that's that's in progress right now. It's happening. And those clubs will do meets, campouts, and shoots. Uh, up to them how they do it, what order they do it, and exactly how they do it. But the concept would be, a, a typical thing would be, you get together with your group, maybe you have a campout. You have a sergeant-at-arms that makes sure the guns are safe, so everybody brings their gun in, just like you do at a gun show. So they check it, make sure it's clear, and band it. That way, if you're drinking beers around the fire, you know, we can't have this turn into an accident. We can't. It would destroy it before it starts. So we have to have that level of control. And from then on, you kind of do things the way you want. But during that evening, hopefully, people tell the stories of their guns and bring friends and family and relations, etc., along with them, and do different events, just have a good time, camp out. And then maybe wake up the next day, go to the range, or if you're in a place where it's just okay, you know, make the guns ready to fire and go have a shoot. Let people shoot each other's guns and stuff. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Just experience it and let young people come and shoot the gun that one day they will own. Because indeed what you're saying is this gun, whether it was your grandfather's or you're going to be the grandfather someday, is not leaving our family. Or if I don't have family, I'm going to find a suitable person to hand it down to, somebody that I'm going to be a mentor toward. And this gun's not going to be hawked. It's not going to be pawned. This is part of a legacy. And then when it comes time to actually hand that gun down, it gets done at an event. I, I can't think of a better way to promote the Second Amendment, uh, gun rights in general, etc. And I can't think of something that is 
better suited to building prepper communities and things like that, but yet broadens our reach. I don't know if you've ever been to SHOT Show or not, but the, the gun market is measured in the tens of millions, where the prepper market is you know, numbered in the tens of hundred thousands, right? I mean, it's, it's a big, big difference. And we can create strong communities and strong traditions and strong uh, associations with people. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that. So far, uh, 162 people have joined the Granddaddy's Gun Club and confirmed their membership. So when you join, you get an email. So there's a whole bunch of people that didn't click the email to, to, to confirm their membership. But 162 active members, uh, those 162 active members have already created 40 groups. Um, Uh, some of them are like military veterans, past and present. There's a Delo group, but most are exactly what I envisioned. North Central Texas, College Station, Texas, Arizona, Southern California, things like that. And people are starting to join those groups and talk to each other. So the next step is for those groups to get large enough that they can start having actual face-to-face -face meetings, campouts, and shootouts, and find locations to do this with. So it's going really well. There's also a beta team. Uh, that you have to be invited to. And if you want to be part of it, you can ask me. Just PM me on the site uh, after you friend me up. And it's kind of like a mini Facebook thing. Uh, or send me an email and say, I don't know what to do, and I'll help you. You can come onto the beta team. And we're looking for people that want to blog about guns and gun rights. We're looking for people that want to put together, you know, how-to information. Here's how to set up a group, whatever, ever. People with WordPress experience that want to make the site better. And design people. I think we have some pretty good design people, some pretty good WordPress people already. I'm sure they could all use some help because it's all being done on a volunteer basis. But they're working on design. We've got a logo. Hasn't been released yet. Hasn't been finalized yet. And there's some other ideas for it. So we'll see. But we are we're beginning to make the site really look good. You just don't see it yet. They're working on it and we'll get it right. And then we'll roll it out so it looks more like what it is. But again, as I said before, this site is fully functional. You can set up groups right now. You can start communicating right now. And this is the best part about your groups. You can start a group like Southern California, North Central Texas, whatever. And that's a public open group so that you can get enough people in there to start finding people really close to you. And then if you decide, well, we want to have our own little group of 20 people that's our core, and then we want everybody to be invite only, you can create a private group right now on the site and only invite people that you want to And no one sees what's going on in there but you. So you can have the public group to get large enough to create the small groups. You're welcome to leave your small group public too. It's up to you. But it's all ready to go. Should this get big enough that individual groups want their own blogs on Granddaddy's Gun, I can set that up. This is one of the most powerful WordPress platforms you can get your hands on. It's called BuddyPress and BBPress. They're combined together. And with plugins and add-ons, I can make this site do almost anything you could want it to do. I really can. So I want to know what features you want as well. This is not one of those things that we're going to talk about developing and get a developer. I did this. All we're doing now is window dressing and how-tos. What we're lacking is you. If you care about gun rights, if you want to leave a legacy behind for people in the future, if you want to take a gun that's not granddaddy's gun, but have it be your granddaddy's gun someday in the hand of your grandson, Or if you have your grandfather's gun, and by God, no one will take it from you, and one day you wanted to put it in the hand of your grandson among fellow members of your own gun club and have six generations in that one weapon on that one handoff and know that when he does it, it will be nine, then you want to be part of this. Granddaddy'sGun.com. Click on Join. Sign up. It's free. Please do so. Okay, let's go ahead and get into your 
first actual question for an expert council member now. This question is for Nick Ferguson, and he kind of goes right into it, so I'll read the question so that you're up to speed when you hear Nick's answer. It says, I have a 10-acre homestead in the Puget Sound area. My land sits on the valley floor and has some seasonal saturation from a high water table. When the rain gets going in the rainy season, some flooding towards the low edge to other pla- up to, of other pastures uh, will inevitably move in. I'm thinking of creative ways to collect and control the wetness. One idea I have is to put a pond in a low corner of my pasture to encourage water to collect there, and then to drain out to a pre-existing drainage ditch. I know this isn't a ton of info on my circumstances, but maybe some ideas will come to mind anyway. I assume I don't get the humidity or heat hours for rice, but I certainly have the soil type and moisture. Some other info, we are on 10 acres. We raise guinea hogs, meat goats, rabbits, and ducks in the established silvopasture system. The low end of our pasture are just grass and pasture at this point because of high water levels, so the slate is fairly clean. Thanks in advance for all you do, Cody. Nick, what say you on this one? Hey there, TSP listeners. It's Nick Ferguson again from Homegrown Liberty calling in to answer another expert council question. And this one was from Cody. And... I'll just jump right into this. Well, Cody, I think you're spot on in your assessment um, with my caveat being it's really difficult to get specific and give you some solid advice on something this uh, generic without actually seeing pictures or being on site because there's a lot that I could not know about this. So there's a lot that I could be saying wrong. So take this with a grain of salt. Um, but I, I'll just say the general rule of thumb is that if water pools in a spot during wet periods, it's probably a good candidate for a pond location. Of course, you know, you need to get some professional advice, boots on the ground to really know for sure if that's wise or not. And you'll need to take into consideration things like the topography, the downhill risk, What happens if this pond fails? How large is the body of water that you're holding back? You know, what is the situation downhill of that with your neighbors? If we're talking small scale, then, you know, you may only need a local earth mover who knows what they're doing and a single bulldozer. But if you're talking about a more sizable body of water, then you might need to get the advice of an engineer before construction. And you might even need to do that anyways if we're talking about some steep topography. So, you know, I'd hate for you to go install something like this and end up with a failure that threatens or damages a neighbor's property or structure because you will be liable for that. So I say proceed with caution and wisdom and get some expert advice, someone that can actually uh, see what you're dealing with and know intimately your situation and the landform that you're dealing with. But generally, like I said, when you have an overabundance of water in a location, one of the best things to do is to create more diversity in the environment. If it's flat and muddy parts of the year, but, you know, dry and cracked the other parts of the year, then, well, let's deepen the low spot and raise up the higher spots That way you get more consistently drier usable soils that will stay healthier for a longer part of the year and you'll end up with a constant source of water in the form of a pond. There's a lot that we can do to to keep our soils moist, 
but if they're vacillating in between uh, anaerobic and completely soaked under a little bit of water part of the year, but then too dry to use the rest of the year, then we don't have a healthy situation. Versus if we change that into a situation where it's the edge of a drier pasture and a pond, well, now we have a whole lot of resiliency there. So, uh, you know, both of those results are going to be an improvement, in my opinion. It'll give you some added flexibility and resiliency in your ability to water your animals with captured water instead of pumped water, which I think is fantastic. And you have a source that you can use for fantastic irrigation needs. I'd much rather see you use pond water than well water. And even I'd, li- I'd rather you see, uh, see you use pond water, water over captured rainwater, like in a tank. Because that pond water is going to be full of life, and it's going to have more nutrients in it than rainwater. So I think it's it's great for that. Uh, you could set up a small solar pump and a holding tank higher up on the property, and now you have almost free gravity-fed pond water that you can fill you know, portable troughs for your animals, or you can water your garden or your trees as you need it. But, you know, I think it sounds like you've got a good plan. You're doing great, man. Keep on doing good work. Thanks for the questions as always, guys. Uh, we're getting started on editing the knife class, the knife making class, which should be ready in about a month or so, maybe a month and a half. Um, and I just wanted to say, if you think it's a great survival skill to know how to make your own knife, or if you think that maybe in a broad-scale economic disaster, that it might be a good thing to know how to make a knife from scratch, you might want to look out for this class to become available. I think it's a fantastic idea to know how to do something this critical. I mean, how many times do you use a knife every day? I use mine every day, multiple times a day. And that's something that I never want to go without just because I didn't take the time to learn how to do it myself. Anyways, you can check out my podcast and my blog over at homegrownliberty.com and you can email me directly at nick at homegrownliberty.com. Have a great weekend. Do good things. Good advice, so Nick. I only have a few additions to think about. Number one, you've got this low-lying area, which means your land obviously has slope to it. Oftentimes, it makes sense to put in multiple small ponds as you're coming down, allowing for overflow and holding more water higher in the landscape, and then using that as your kind of your last ditch down at the bottom. The reason for this is it actually reduces flooding issues because more and more of the water is held versus all of the water getting down to that pond. That gives you more resiliency. It's all about time, budget, and I completely agree with Nick. When you start holding water back, anything beyond a simple pond, get professional help. Get engineers in there that can look at it and determine if you're creating a hazard. Because you don't want to create a hazard and make sure, you know, you, you want someone, if you're building anything that approaches, you know, from going to pond to actual dam 
and you're actually holding back significant water, you're, you're getting a, an installer that's familiar with the concept of a keyway, how to put a keyway in, because that is critical. And don't just assume because the company's big, they know what they're doing. Talk to them, maybe get multiple opinions before you make any major decisions with Earthworks, period. Um, as far as your aside about rice, uh, heat hours for rice. If Ben Falk can grow rice where he is, you can grow rice where you are. I think people are under the misconception that rice is a crop that has to be grown in the tropics or something like that. Lots of rice is grown in the mountains of Japan. That's the model that Ben Falk, and of course, you know, he's in Vermont in like zone four, I think, four or five right in there. I think he's in zone four, solid zone four. The key with growing rice in these climates is you have to start the plants in advance and grow them to seedlings, and then put them out into your rice paddies, which is the way it's done in a lot of the alpine regions of China and Japan. That's your kind of your bottleneck on work there, because you don't have a long enough growing season otherwise. But it certainly can be done, and you might want to check out Ben Falk's book, The Resilient Farm and Homestead. I'll put a link in the show notes today for that book, uh, because even though it's different, it's also kind of the same. And I think you have a lot of similar goals, and I think you could really benefit from Ben's book. Next up, I'm excited to have Paul Wheaton back to tell us about all the things going on at Wheaton Labs. Paul's been down and out for a while. He's up and mobile again. He's still in recovery, but I'm glad to have him back. He's a good friend, and I've missed having him around. Paul, what's going on, Sir Duke of Permaculture? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another report of stuff going on at Wheaton Labs. And I'm here with Jocelyn Campbell. <laughs> Hi. All right. Off the top of the list, uh, we have water up on the lab. So uh, Exciting news. <laughs> Jim drilled a well. Uh, he, he found water. Um, he's currently working on getting a, a pump down there. Uh, it's about 40 feet deep. We're not sure what the quality is or uh, there's a lot of things we're not sure about it. But, you know, the first thing to do is you get a well, you try it out for a while, see what the quality is and go from there. Um, we've learned a lot about drilling wells the last two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> Adventure! True. It's been new to a lot of people here. Yeah. Um, lots of fun things with morel mushrooms. So this is morel mushroom country. Um, and uh, uh, there was a fire, forest fire, oh, 20 miles away or so. A bunch of people drove out there to go pick morels because morels are um, firephilic. They're flammophilic. They, they like fire. Okay, they they so where so they usually show up a year or two later, right? Fire, and so a bunch of uh, the folks here went over there and they found some mushrooms. But then in the meantime, somebody who didn't go just walked out the door of the office and found a bunch of morels. Turns out more than the people who drove a half an hour away, <laughs> right here at base camp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, and in fact now. Um, Evan is running point. Uh, no, not Evan. Uh, Fred. Fred's running point on. Uh, I guess you could say he's planting morels, but actually what he's doing is um, you know spreading the spores out. And most people believe that you cannot do that with morels, but we found a YouTube video from an urban farm guy who uh, got like 150 morels out of his backyard from doing this technique. So we're trying it out here. So, it's worth a try. So Fred's been putting this morel spore all over the place, and mm -hmm. uh, um, we're excited to see what happens next year. And, of course, this year we have morels, and many of you don't, neener, neener. <laughs> <clears throat> it's pretty amazing. Um, we planted – we did a lot of frost seeding. Uh, we had mixed results. Um, 
the uh, we did have one thing though that was a kind of a clover that we planted. It's called bals- balanza clover. I've never heard of it before. And now we've got these clover shrubs showing up all over the place. This stuff is awesome. <laughs> I, I want to plant a lot more of that. Right, right. And we have some uh, other clovers that are growing as well. The frost seeding, explain that just briefly. So what we tried to do is in February, uh, late February, uh, when there was a heavy snow, to go and scatter seed all over the place. And then the snow tends to, as it melts, work the um, the seed down into the soil. And then if you have a few more hard frosts, then that kind of gets the soil to kind of heave and drop and heave and drop, and it kind of mixes the seed down into the soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Frost seeding has been a great success for some people some of the time, and uh, generally, you you need to use a lot more seed. We used more seed, but you know the thing is, is that we had we had results. It was it's easy to do. I mean, I think seed balls would be better, but those take time to make. Yep. Yep. Uh, next up on the list is uh, junk pole fence has become really popular with the ants. I think that Evan and Jim have a collaboration for their two plots, uh, and and they've got their two plots totally fenced off now. Uh, using entirely junk pole fence. Do you mean Evan and Kai? No, oh, Evan Jim. and Jim. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know they'd expanded it to Jim's plot as well. I thought it was, okay. I thought it's a collaboration with Jim. Um, but okay, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it is Evan and Jim. So that way they don't have to do the fence between the two plots hmm. and they can keep the deer out because that's a problem we've been having a lot of. Yeah. I, Kai has been using uh, a method with no nails, you know, where you bend. Yeah, he heats. Bend things. He puts mm-hmm. strips of the wood into a fire real quick, and then he uh, bends it around the poles to kind of pin them together and kind right. of tie them. Right, it's awesome. Yeah, uh, flooring. Jim has been working on. He's, he's built himself a bit of a wood floor inside of uh, his place, uh, and been experimenting with earthen floors and. Um, it seems like people are still, you know, mixed about whether which they like better, the earthen floor or the wood floor. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more exploration of that over the next uh, few months. Right. We want to work on floors in both Allerton Abbey and possibly the teepee. Uh, Evan has uh, put together an outdoor kitchen, and it looks like it is built almost entirely out of roundwood. So the use of roundwood, which would include junk pole, uh, mm-hmm. which is a roundwood, and up. So basically, junk pole would be our substitute for bamboo. Cause like a lot of the world mm-hmm. is like, we make everything out of bamboo. Uh-huh. And it's like, we have bamboo too. Only we call them trees that we were going to throw away. <laughs> 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 they just grow all over the place like weeds. And right. rather than cutting down our weeds and burning them, which is what most everybody else does, we're actually using them. Right. Um, oh, and then Evan's got a funny thing. He's built this huge hoogleberm. At his place, and he's built a tunnel through it, um, and so that is so cool. <laughs> that that has been his vision from the very beginning, and now that they're actually working on it, I think that makes them very happy. Uh, next up, we've got a person here who is working as a resort manager, Janet. Yes, and uh, in collaboration with that, we've set up the new Sepper program. Uh, Sepper program, huh, of course, you know Sep Holter, uh, you know. But separate program. Seriously excited about permaculture pampering. Yes. And so the idea is that you can come out, stay in one of our structures, 
and um, you know, uh, get all of the lovely perks that come with that. Get the tour. Uh, we can give you rides to and from the airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, she's also got this thing called uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. She's worked out with uh, several of the ants, different kinds of micro-workshops, like one-person workshops or maybe two or three people kind of workshops. So, uh, you know, almost everything that you might find in any of the workshops that we teach here, um, you know, uh, you could carve, your, carve some spoons, you can um, get some archery practice, um, you know, tan some hides, whatever it is that might be available. Some things might be 20 bucks, some things might be free. Um, right. So, but you kind of let Janet know what all you want to do before you arrive, and she tries to set it up. Yep, and a lot depends on what's going on, of course. But um, it's a it's a much more luxurious stay. We actually give you real bedding and pillows, and we might even provide you with firewood for the Rock and Mass <laughs> heaters. So, so it's a little different than a Gapper program. Right. Um, We've got several structures set up so far. Uh, the teepee, of course, is the one that's the most in demand. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, Wafati's, uh, Allerton Abbey, and uh, Cooper Cabin. Um, the Cooper Cabin is beautiful on the inside and really large. can take a large group. Um, uh, the Love Shack is popular. It's it's like, uh, think, think Thoreau thoughts. How mm-hmm. small can you go? <laughs> Uh, that's got a bunk bed in it. Uh, the red cabin has a bunk bed in it and Peter Vandenberg's, uh, tiny house rocket mass heater, which he calls mini mouse mm-hmm. is set up in there. Um, we have gobs of tent pads. Uh, we even have something set up so people could stay in the Fisher price house, uh, if they want to. And then of course, you know, you have a regular bathroom and a regular kitchen and a regular, 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 everything, regular, regular. Right. In a, boring, in a double wide where Paul and I live. And then, yeah. And so then, <laughs> so then I'll, I'll give you ugly thoughts in the morning. Uh, glare at you a bit. What are you doing oh, in my kitchen? Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be part of the charm. <laughs> so, okay. um, but you all know, come and stay in the Fisher Price house and be able to do the choose your own adventure thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we got a, a PRI certified PDC starting on May 30th. Uh, and because it's PRI certified, that means it's purple free. Um, now, of course, it's got all of the standard PDC stuff. And we got a bunch of stuff more that's um, uh, to our stuff. So last year, uh, people butchered some animals and brain tanned the hides. Uh, oh, and huckleberry season should be here about the same time. Might be. It's early. It's looking to be early this year. Um, and so now I think a big thing is is that our location. I've been to PDCs where it's like people bring in porta potties and stuff, and and it's like not a very permaculture location. So I think our location, even though it's still under construction, we have a lot of cool permaculture stuff to kind of drink in while you're here. Um, for uh, the hands-on stuff. Then uh, there's going to be uh, choices of what you're going to do for the hands-on thing. Johnson-style airwell, Dakota fire holes, um, uh, multiple techniques for mulching a steep hugel culture, a cob project, seed balls and seed bombs, lumberjack stuff, and, of course, as always, uh, everybody gets to drive an excavator and a tractor. Always. Followed immediately by the appropriate technology course with Tim Barker, Jeff Lawton's former land manager, uh, and we have two spots left at Ant Village and three Deep spots. Roots. Three spots left at Deep Roots. Yes. Are we out of time? You're making it out of time face. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks, Jack. Bye. Bye. 
You know, what I think is amazing about Paul is how he's been able to get so many varied people together in a very remote area. I mean, uh, frankly, if Wheaton Labs was somewhere more uh, geographically available and a little less cold in winter, I think he'd have even more people involved. So it's pretty impressive what he's been able to do um, and, and where he's heading with it and all of the cool things that are going on. It truly is Wheaton Labs, you know. I, I like that term because it's all these different people saying, hey, I've had this great idea. I just need a way to pull it off. Well, here's some resources. Here's some space. Come get it done, and we'll see if it actually works because some stuff works and Some stuff doesn't work. Next question I have is for Chef Keith Snow. And the basic question is as such. What are some of your favorite ways to cook fish between fishing for cats, white bass, stripers, and crappie, and our homegrown tilapia? I'm growing gills myself. I love fish, but a man can only eat so much fried and simply grilled with butterfish. We pretty much fillet everything, but I'm open to going to whole fish. If you give me a good reason, Mike in South Texas and Chef Keith Snow, what do we do with all these doggone fish? I'll tell you one thing Mike can do. He can pack a whole bunch of them up and send them to Nine Mile Farm, and Jack will take care of them by eating them. But otherwise, yeah, I, I love cooking. So, Chef, what do we do with all these fish? Hey, Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Mike in South Texas. This guy is loaded down with fish. He grows tilapia and he's an uh, avid fisherman, catfish, bass, stripers, you name it. And he's getting a little tired of just fried or grilled fish with butter. Um, there are 60 zillion ways to cook with fish, Mike. Let me just give you a couple of ideas. Um, up on Cape Cod years ago, we used to fish for, um, stripers is what we were going for off the, we catch them by boat, but a lot of time we would just surf cast off this long jetty and, uh, we'd be going for stripers, but more often than not, we'd wind up with bluefish, which are actually a lot of fun to catch. They fight a lot. Um, they're a bit, um, oily they're kind of uh they're serious fish they're not a white flaky kind of a wussy fish like a tilapia sorry uh, i know a lot of people grow tilapia i'm not a big fan of them because they don't have much flavor but on the other end of the spectrum is the bluefish which is loaded down with flavor and you know doesn't look so pretty so what we would do a lot of times is to make a fish pate a smoked fish pate and uh basically we would take and we could catch I mean, you would almost, at the right time, you could catch a, a bluefish, you know, every other cast. And we would use surface poppers, big, you know, four or five inch long things that you would uh, drag across the surface of the water. And those bluefish would hit those like crazy. So we would take three or four bluefish, fillet them up, and smoke them. And they'd be, you know, we would smoke them for a good long time so they were... Um, They're rather dry, you know, they were, they weren't, weren't very moist, but very smoky. And back then we would use oak and I think a little bit of mesquite. What we would do then is, uh, put in a bunch of parsley, take the fish, put them in a food processor, or heck, you could do it in a bowl with the back of a fork. But, um, fresh chopped parsley, a 50-50 mix of plain yogurt and mayo, horseradish, lemon juice, and a little bit of minced onion, of course, some salt and pepper, and you kind of mix that up, and you've got this smoked fish pate, which we would put on the table. Um, heck, we would start a lot of kind of just very simple dinners with that. There'd be beers, 
um, fresh baguettes, crackers, what have you, and that smoked fish pate. And people would just take a, you know, fork or, I mean, a, um, a knife and kind of spread it on the end of a baguette or crackers. And that stuff is, is awesome. I love a smoked fish pate. So that's a good idea to use up and you can kind of use any fish that you mentioned in your email or question. Um, but those oily type fish that have a very strong flavor, um, you'd probably be looking maybe at your stripers um, and bass are going to be probably your best bet um, to make that. But just about any fish can can work. So that's a great idea. What about a fish soup, man? If you do a little research into the food of Marseille, which is Mediterranean um, coast where in France where um, a soup, bouillabaisse, is uh, quite famous. It's a little complicated, but it can use a lot of fish, and uh, that that's a little too complex to, to discuss here. Another great way to cook fish, you mentioned some basic cooking techniques, but fish, what the, what the French call in papillote. This is a very simple way to um, make fish, and basically you take parchment paper and you make a heart shape out of it, and then you take some uh, finely either julienned vegetables, carrots, leeks go really well, fennel, maybe a little bit of tomato, um, some sliced onions. You take those items, you put them in the, and, and again, a little difficult to explain here, but you put them in the center of the parchment paper. Then you take your fish that goes on top, season a little salt and pepper, Put in a pat of butter and a little bit of dry white wine, and then you seal this thing up. And if you don't have parchment paper, you can do the same exact thing with tin foil. Some people get freaked out because if it's aluminum and all that, but um, parchment you can find it in any supermarket. But you seal this thing up. So, uh, and then at the very end of your heart or the bottom pointy part of your heart shape, when you seal up those edges, if you could imagine. Um, a heart, heart shape, you put the, the fish and the vegetables on the right side of the heart, you fold this paper that's folded in the middle, fold it over, you kind of twist all the edges. When you get to the bottom, there's a little pointy thing, and what we do is just go, and you blow a little air, and it kind of puffs the top of this um, sealed paper. And then you put it on a baking sheet, and you bake it in the oven about 350 degrees for 25 minutes and then you serve the whole paper package and we used to serve this in some seafood places that I've worked at you know decades ago um, but most people just don't do it that much anymore but it's a great way to serve fish you get a little bit of vegetables the butter and the wine and the fish steam so it's a very healthy way to cook and then you just take some scissors you cut the paper open kind of fold it under and you serve the whole thing at the table like that People love it. So that's a, a great way to use up fish. Another thing I like to do, again, kind of Mediterranean inspired, um, take your, your fish and you, and this would be again great for the, if you can get, you know, big striper and, um, cut it up into fillets. You could even do a whole fish like this, but if you just, um, fillet the two sides and what you want to do is get some fennel, sliced fennel, and this is a bulb. Take the fennel, and you want some of the fronds, the green little frilly part on top as well, but you slice that fennel, and then you put it in a bowl with um, blood oranges, or any oranges, but blood oranges make a great presentation. Just slice the blood oranges. You want to get the pits out of there. Toss it with the fennel, uh, some diced or um, julienne chilies, 
a little bit of lemon juice, salt and pepper. Toss that whole thing in a bowl and then put it on the bottom of a, like a, you know, lasagna pan essentially, something that, that can, you can roast in. And then you place your fish on top of it and then you take about, uh, three quarters of a cup of good quality extra virgin olive oil and drizzle that all over the top of the fish and it'll kind of go everywhere. Salt and pepper, and you want to use a flaky salt, something like a gray sea salt, or my favorite, it's called Maldon, M-A-L-D-O-N, and comes from um, Britain. And it's a flaky salt. It's really not that salty, but it's got a great crunch and texture. It's awesome stuff. You can get that in most stores. It's sold in a little um, square box. So then you put this um, fish and vegetable dish into your 275-degree oven. And you're going to slow roast this thing for about 35 minutes or so. And then you take the whole thing out. You take the fish out. You place it on a platter. So the fish comes out. Now you've got all these nice slow roasted vegetables. You put those kind of on top. And then um, whatever juice is collected, you definitely want to scoop that out and drizzle it on the top. And just put it in the center of a plate. Some good wine, some crusty baguettes, and have at it, man. That is um, a sexy dish. It's easy to prepare, very common ingredients. So um, I would give that a try, and I hope some of these ideas will inspire you to not be eating you know, fried catfish all summer, man. That's it, folks. As always, do check out my spices and seasonings at harvesteating.com and on Amazon. I appreciate everybody's support and your support of TSP. Jack, thanks, man. I'll kind of give you a quick addition, and this would work well for tilapia because, as Chef said, it's not the most flavorful fish, and it works great. I used to do so striper. White bass used to do this with all the time. Uh, it's kind of a lighter version of something my, my late friend Hal Dodd uh, did called sandbass chowder. It's a, a lighter chowder that I like to make with, with seafood. And it's really, really simple to make. Um, you're going to want some fish stock. And a great way to do this, you said that you um, are filleting most of your fish. So take your filleted corpses, basically. Uh, and I do remove the entrails for this. So you, you go ahead and, and, and pull out your guts after you fillet it. But you've got the head, the tail, everything. And I like to get, you can buy, they're called like poultry soup bags or chicken soup bags or something like that. They're basically socks of cheesecloth is what they are. And I like to, when I'm doing fish, because there's so many little bones and all, put the stuff in there. Um, you can also just take like flour sack towel and fill it up, or just a cheesecloth and fill it up and tie it up. Throw that and just cook it as a, as a stock, as like a bone stock. Um, use some uh, onions, uh, some celery, and some carrots, basically a mirepoix, a little bit of garlic, salt, and stew that to make a stock, or buy fish stock. Okay, So that's the, the base of your recipe. And you just take your stock then and decide, well, what do I want to go with this, and do I want to make it creamy or just as a stock? And what I like to do is chop up a few chili peppers and get my stock warm and going. And then I add my chili peppers to that stock. Uh, if you don't like it hot, don't do that. Some spring onion or scallions also in there uh, into your stock. And at this point, your stock should be clear. You should have strained everything out of it. So only what you're adding is going to be in there. And um, you can do whatever else you like. What I like to do then is add... Some potatoes. I know I'm the paleo guy and all, but potatoes, a little bit here and there, so small potatoes. Yukon Gold, Baby Reds, those are great ones in little cubes. Just begin to simmer them until they get soft. They take less time to cook than like a russet. 
uh, and then you use pieces of fish, you add your fish, and you're basically going to poach the fish. You're just going to cook the fish till it's done so it doesn't fall apart into complete nothingness. If you want it to be creamy, add some evaporated milk at this point. Okay, the, this is not condensed milk. It's like that's like sweet, sticky candy stuff. It's evaporated milk, and add as much. Usually, one small can to a pot is enough. You can add more or less. You can have regular milk, but evaporated milk seems to work better. And then I like to put a sweet crunch in it to do corn. Get yourself some good organic corn on the cob. Gr grill it till it's just started to char all around. So don't worry about buttering it, salting it, anything like that. Um, just husk it. Throw it on a grill until the kernels begin to just start to char, but it's not really cooked through. So high heat, fast, kind of turning it, turning it, get a little char, a little roasted flavor on it. And then take a knife and cut the corn off the cob and put it in at the end. The soup's basically done at this point. It's just warming through. And then serve that. It's fantastic. And I know it's summertime in Texas. It's not that hot this year, ironically, but... You can make this in the summer, just don't heat it up to a billion degrees, right? Let it cool down before you serve it. And you can go a million different directions with that basic recipe. You really can. It is a fantastic base. Whatever else you think might be good in it probably would. You can thicken it and move it to like a New England chowder type chowder. You can um, omit your, um, your creaming of it at all. And add something to it like a tomato and move more toward like the Manhattan style. You can leave everything out and just kind of be like this, this nice fish soup. It's a great way to do fish and it, it gives you a lot more flexibility. And you can always incorporate other things into any of those. So small shrimp, uh, some scallop, things like that. Just think about when you add this stuff and add the stuff that takes longer to cook last. Great way to do this. Do everything I said. Okay. Put mussels or clams in there. Let them open and let all that liqueur come out with them when they open. And then add your fish at the end because it will cook fast. Um, and, and you know, kind of just do that together. So your, your muscles go in. As soon as they start to pop, your fish go in and, and you're done. Um, shrimp I would put in right about the same time as the fish. Just make sure you've cooked it long enough. But don't overcook it because you have this tender, beautiful stuff to this either mushy fall apart or you go to a, like, tough thing when you do overcook shrimp and things like that. Next question is for Stephen Harris, and it's basically, hey, how come sometimes batteries explode? I know they don't really explode, but they kind of, and they mess up stuff. And, and what causes that, and how do I stop it? Hi, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel, calling in to answer your question. Got a really good one here. Stephen, how do I prevent batteries from, quote, exploding, unquote, and ruining devices? Okay, I know they don't actually explode, but something causes the damn batteries to leak fluid, and if they are in a device, like a $300 GPS, it makes my head want to explode. Can you please discuss what is actually happening to the batteries? What causes this to occur, and how to prevent and or minimize this in future? Thanks so much. Well, what's actually happening is as the battery is discharging, it is generating pressure inside of the battery. It is doing this by the generation of hydrogen. Now, don't get all freaked out. It is a mouse fart of hydrogen, but it's enclosed within the cell of the battery. It's of no danger to you, and hydrogen's not a danger. And what's happening, it's building up in the battery and it's leaking out. Now, people don't know this, but a battery can actually have six, seven, eight hundred PSI of hydrogen pressure in it as it's discharging. Uh, a lot of pressure can be inside of that little AA cell. 
Now, we're going to talk about double A's and D's, but it applies to all batteries, and we're typically talking about, right now, alkaline batteries. So this is what's happening. Well, what causes this to occur is the battery is generally going to leak when it's almost fully discharged or it's fully discharged. And what's going on is typically this happens is say you put it into a radio or a GPS unit. Those devices may very well have a switch on them that is sitting there being looked at by the electronics of the device looking for you to push that switch. So the electronics of that device is drawing a very minuscule amount of power, microamps of power, waiting for you to hit the switch, and then it turns itself on when it sees that you hit the switch. So this can put a load on a battery, and after a year or two or three, it can bring the battery down to almost nothing where it is going to start to leak, versus if you were using your device and you ran it all the way down and ran out of power, you'd pull the old batteries out, put new batteries in, and away you go. So alkaline batteries in a state of discharge like to leak. Now, devices that have a hard switch on them that goes click, click, and is actually turning the power on and off directly to the electronics, it is less likely to happen. But batteries can, to say your batteries in a higher temperature or a lower temperature are going to want to discharge quickly. A battery maintains its best life at room temperature. Freezing a battery cell can rupture it. Uh, too much heat, uh, like in a car at 140 degrees or more, can really do havoc on the internal chemistry of the battery. So temperature variations can cause the battery to self-discharge quickly, which will lead to uh, the battery leaking. So these are some of the things to keep an eye out. So this is what is causing it to occur. Now I have devices, I've had batteries leak on me and I know it's frustrating. And I have I had I got a radio, I'm looking at it right now in a drawer. And it's had four D cell batteries in it since two thousand four and I'm talking to you in twenty sixteen and they haven't leaked. And those batteries I can go turn on the radio right now and it'll work and it's a soft on. You press the switch and it goes, Oh, I'm turning on and it works just good. So it always seems to leak in the devices that are the most valuable and and leak in the devices that you need the most or hardest to get the batteries out of, like a flashlight. So your best recommendation is, if it's not a critical item, to store the batteries outside of your emergency flashlight or your emergency radio or your GPS. Keep them outside of it. And like what I do for GPS is... If I got spare alkaline batteries, I will take them out of the device, and I'll take some electrical tape or duct tape, and I will tape those batteries to the back of the GPS. That way, when if I pick up the GPS and I put it into a bag, I put it into a box, that way if I pick it up to take it with me, the batteries are attached to it, and they're coming along with me for the ride. And all I have to do is take the tape off, open the back of the GPS, put the batteries in, put the cover on, and away I go. This is one thing that works really good. Now, I like to have things that are ready to go with batteries in them. Because when the power goes out and you go to your emergency drawer and you feel around for the flashlight, the last thing you want to do is the wonderful, you know, game and maneuver of like, okay, which way are the batteries pointing and how do I put them into the flashlight and in the dark? 
So the answer to this is to minimize this in the future is one to keep the batteries out. As I said, this is for alkaline batteries. Nickel metal hydride end-loop batteries and lithium disposable batteries like Energizer disposable lithiums don't leak. Now, I've seen one nickel metal hydride in my entire life leak, and that was a very old battery, but I've never, ever found a nickel metal hydride battery in a device that has leaked. Now, lithium batteries, the disposable type, like double A's, if you put them into something, the batteries are good at room temperature for up to 15 to 20 years. At 15 to 20 years, it will still have 80% of its energy left in it, and it will still work past 15 or 20 years. But that's what the date means on a battery. It's got a very low rate of self-discharge. So lithium disposables don't leak. They're very light. They're more money, and they have more energy in them than an alkaline does. And so they're the perfect thing to put into that flashlight or that radio. It was like, God, I need it right now. I need to turn it on and have the damn thing work and not F with the thing. Lithium disposable batteries are the way to go. Now, with nickel metal hydride, there's old nickel metal hydride and new nickel metal hydride. The new ones are called low self-discharge or pre-charged nickel metal hydride. The old nickel metal hydrides, they would have a very high self-discharge rate. In two to three months, they would be at zero, completely dead battery. You'd have to recharge them to use them. The low self-discharge ones will be at between 70 to 80% if stored at room temperature in a device after one year. So let's say you put nickel metal hydrides into that emergency flashlight or emergency radio of yours. You're going to want to really recharge those on a yearly basis. And make sure you're buying low self-discharge batteries that say low self-discharge or pre-charge. And those would be the best ones would be the Panasonic N-Loop batteries. And they are on battery1234.com and solar1234.com. I have links to the best ones on Amazon. Go there, click on it, go to Amazon, and you will not be disappointed by Panasonic and Loop batteries and anything you're going to put them in. So, I hope this answers your question. Oh, uh, what it's doing is leaking potassium hydroxide. That potassium hydroxide, that's an alkali. It's an irritant to your skin. Uh, it's caustic, slightly caustic, um, like I said, enough to irritate you, and it leaks out of the battery and mixes with carbon dioxide from the air, and it forms potassium carbonate, which is you can think of as chalk, but it's a sister cousin to, to real chalk. So it gets to be inert when it's potassium carbonate, and it won't irritate your skin. But if you got it on your skin, you can't tell which one's which because they're both white powder. So immediately wash and flush your skin with copious amounts of water, and then wipe your hands dry, and you'll be fine. If it leaks in your device, what you want to do is take a Q-tip and dip it into like lemon uh, juice because that is an acid and this is a base, or dip it into vinegar and then apply it to the white portion that is on the metal where it leaked. You, this will you'll clean it up right away, and or you might have to let it sit overnight and let the acid do its job. Acids and base neutralize each other and basically form salt water. So you can then clean it up real easily. Um, what was I going to say? I'm sorry. So anyways, use a Q-tip with the lemon juice or vinegar to clean it up. You might have to use some steel wool to scrape it, but this is the best way to clean up the white powder mess that is inside your device. 
Uh, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. All of the free stuff I have done with Jack. I have a treasure trove of preparedness just waiting for you to listen to. All for free at Stephen1234.com. Thanks, guys. Keep in on emailing in the questions. I love them all. Talk to you soon. Um, one addition to this, Costco has a Costco brand battery. And Costco generally, Costco brands are generally high-end brands with a white label brand. In other words, they've rebranded it. And we do use the Costco batteries. Um, and we have found that, you know, you leave them in storage for a long period of time, there's no problem, and they tend to be, you know, in good state of, of, of charge when you put them into a device and start using them. This is what you don't do with those batteries, because I've heard this from too many people. I haven't had the problem, but I've never let the problem occur. You don't put those batteries into something that you're going to leave sit around. So we'll use them. I use them a lot in uh, my wireless microphones, for instance. But when I am done using those, they come out, they go in a Ziploc bag, and they sit in there with them. Uh, and then, you know, I use a battery test to see how much charge they have um, before I start recording. Because nothing sucks worse than you've done 20 minutes of video and you don't know that your wireless mic crapped out 10 minutes into it. Uh, that's, that's a bad thing. I, I use them for various things. I use them in, like, my trackpad on my computer and stuff like that. Because as they begin to get low, you know it. So devices you use every day, they're fine for. Uh, to have a cheap alternative for long-term storage, they're fine for. Using them in devices you use, a, devices you use it occasionally and leaving them in there, even when you've only used them a little bit, they seem notorious for you know puking their guts out, so to speak, and destroying devices. Again, it's never happened to me, but I've had tons of people tell me that they've had Costco batteries more so than Energizer, Duracell, etc., and messed up devices. So you have been warned if you're using those. Next question I have is for Ben Falk. To swale... Or not to swale. Swales are romanticized in permaculture. Every discussion of food forests seems to revolve around swales. We use swales here on our property, and in other places, we don't on the same property. We didn't swale everything. We did what made sense for our goals and our design patterns. Ben, can you talk more about, in the words of permaculture Shakespeare, to swale or not to swale? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Answering a question about um, to swale or not to swale, definitely swales are not always appropriate, just like no one strategy uh, is ever a, just appropriate in all times and all places. It's all context dependent. That's really important to remember because as permaculture and regenerative design is getting more popular, we're seeing a simplification of people treating the strategies as like a, a shopping list and they want to just start implementing all of these strategies on every site. So it's really great that you kind of already understand that that's not the best approach. Um, it's all about context. It's all about just like there's no one right diet for any, for all people. It's all about the individual and also in this case, the site, the goals and the site match together. So that's important to remember. And, um, on your site, you know, swales may or may not be appropriate um, given given that understanding. Um, having a lot of water doesn't mean you don't need swales. I know most folks tend to understand swales because of, I think, the way Jeff Lawton and others have explained them, which is great in that they're water-capturing devices. So in arid climates, like many of the great examples we've seen out there, 
you want to put all these swales in to catch the water instead of letting it run off hill, uh, off the slope, downhill, and um, actually keep that water in your site. However, we've actually had almost better results with swales, well, at least as good results with swales, and originally made them to get above a water table. On, in in areas that are that are plenty wet, too wet for most plants. So the mound is as key a part of the swale mound system as is the ditch. That's really important to remember. We tend to think of swales as the depression, and we need these depressions. We need these on contour ditches to capture water. Well, you're also getting a mound out of the situation, and the mound. For us in the cold climate, cold humid climates of the world, the mound is more important than the ditch. Uh, the ditch is, is especially important as you get into drier landscapes. But in our part of the world and potentially where you are as well, and I don't see that I see a climate location that's really important. I don't know what climate you're in. You're, generally, it sounds like I mean, you could be a lot of places. You have cottonwoods, you have river river basins. So if I had to guess, I, I would guess you might be out west a little bit, but you could be anywhere in a lot of the country. Um, so uh, it's hard to say, but if you have high water table, then you want mounds. Now, they don't have to be on contour necessarily. They could just be individual mounds, and we have good results with that as well. But the benefits of mounds, we all know the benefits of the ditches. I think that's pretty clear about water capture. Um, but the benefits of mounds are multifold. One, you have more soil-air interface. All the action in the soil, all the life action is between the atmosphere and the earth itself. So life is where there's a lot of oxygen at that interface, where there's that interplay at that edge. Um, you have more of that when you make a mound than if you have flat ground. You actually give yourself more land. Essentially, if you swale up an acre and mound up an acre is a better term, actually, you have more than an acre um, of land because you've curved it. You have more soil-air interface. That's warmer. It has more nutrient potential. It's loosened, so plants do better. Um, and plants seem to just in, enjoy those benefits and probably others as well that are unknown. But we've seen the results of it, and plants are much happier on mounds uh, in, in our context anyway. I can't speak for your context. I can only give you an overview and some information about the, the strategy. Uh, it's up to you to take it to your individual spot. Access is a big consideration. When you make mounds and, and ditches, you can easily um, make your access more challenging. So that's one difficulty of making swales. And also you tend to denude an area around it because you have to get the soil from somewhere. If you make a mound, you need to pull that soil from somewhere. Uh, bringing it in from far away has a lot of negatives to it, both cost-wise and also impact-wise and, and access-wise. So usually we take the, land, the soil from the area right next to it, which denudes that area, which is usually a, an overall benefit, but it's a consideration to keep in mind. Um, so that's some, some um, information that should apply to your situation and anyone else's. Um, but I can't give you a prescription, unfortunately, especially without even knowing where you are in the world and much else about your context. But that should hopefully be helpful in you making the best decision for your particular and unique situation. Generally, if you have really good soil like you're mentioning, 
and you have a very balanced hydrology, you have less of a need for swale mounts. It doesn't mean they won't be helpful, but it would put it down a notch in terms of how crucial they might be. That's for sure. Good luck. Thanks a lot. In other words, the ultimate permaculture answer, it depends. And it depends on a lot of things. Uh, as an adjunct to this, I did a video uh, quite a while ago, I guess almost a year ago now, called The Five Primary Functions of Swales. And one I left out was actually that the mound does actually lift trees up out of wetter uh, situations. So even though that swale is holding a lot of water and infiltrating a lot of water, uh, as Ben said, it is actually still not saturating the roots of the plant that's up on the berm on the downward, downward side. The tree, of course, can get down into the, the berm, and the berm is wicking some water up, but most of it is actually infiltrated into the ground. And swales do a lot of other things. They, they spread out fertility. They reduce erosion when they're put in properly. I do want to reiterate what Ben said about access. When you put swales in, you need to think about, well, how am I going to get equipment, people, materials, uh, uh, mowing equipment, animals, in and out of this situation? Because people have a tendency to want to grab every inch of water they can, and if you go out to a property line with a swale, there's no way to get around it. And I've seen that mistake made, or maybe not a property line, but a, 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 a little wood line. And now there's not really an access point around that. So if we design swales right, they can actually be part of our access. Uh, if we design them wrong, we can design out access, and that is always bad. We do not want to design access out of a system. If we want to design access into a system, remember your, your primary considerations when evaluating land and design decisions, water, access, structure. Always think that way, and it will help you make better decisions. The next question I have is for John Pugliano, and it is about how pension funds can actually go bankrupt. How does that happen? Why does it happen? And John, uh, this is an important one, so love to hear what you got to say on this one. Hello, TSP listeners. Today I'm going to answer Aaron's question about why pension plans get into trouble and why they fail. You know, is it because of mismanagement or is it just that they're a pyramid scheme and the only people that win are those that get in early and then, you know, eventually they're destined to fail? Now, Aaron's asking this question because unfortunately, The union-sponsored pension plan that he was part of for 17 years has gotten into trouble. They're insolvent. The pension obligations have been taken over by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Trust. So as a result, the pension that Aaron was promised when he turned 65 has been reduced by more than 70%. Now, unfortunately, what Aaron is going through is not uncommon, and it's going to become more the norm over the next probably 5 to 10 years because somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of all pensions are underfunded, and over the period of the next you know, 15 or 20 years, they're going to hit major shortfalls in the obligations that they promised. Now, to get to Aaron's question about why does this happen, is it a matter of mismanagement, or is it just that these pension plans are all pyramid schemes? Well, while I do think the pension plans are schemes, I don't think that they're necessarily pyramid schemes. You see, the only legal retirement plan that I know of that is a bona fide Ponzi scheme or pyramid scheme is the Social Security system. And that's because it relies on the cash flow from current workers to pay benefits of retired workers. And that system can only go on as long as you have a constant inflow of more workers entering the system than exiting the system, or in the case of Social Security, where it's backed up by the debt and the printing press of the federal government. 
So we won't go into that in today's episode, but Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, and it, too, will be destined to fail, just like all pyramid schemes do. But as far as traditional defined benefit pensions, I do think they're a scheme, but I don't think they're a pyramid scheme, nor do I think that they fail because of mismanagement. In fact, the reason they fail is as a direct result of the way they're managed to begin with. And so, yes, they're a scheme, but the scheme employed is a bait and switch, not a pyramid scheme. So you know how bait and switch works? You're promised one thing, but you receive something else of less value. Defined benefit pension plans are inherently designed to fail, and they generally always do within a generation or so. It's a myth that pension plans were ever safe and that anything the government can do to prop them up is going to solve anything. Just look at the history of the defined pension program. It isn't something that always existed. Take a company like General Motors. They were founded in 1908. They didn't start their defined benefit pension program until 1950. So they were in business for over 40 years before they offered worker pensions. And the 1950s is about the time that corporations started to offer pension plans to their workers. And what was the result of that? Well, they were wrought with fraud, abuse, underfunding, as well as the traditional and expected uncertainties of the marketplace. And so as a result of that, Congress had to come in, and within about 20 or 25 years, and you know, in the early 1970s, they had to enact a series of laws to try and protect and prop up these private and public pensions. Well, here we are 40 years later, and pension plans continue to fail, because it's the nature of the system. The only reason that we don't see more pension plan failures is because probably only about 20% or less of American workers are covered by one. And the reason they're not covered by a pension is because the marketplace knows that they really don't work. That's why today you primarily don't see pensions in the private sector, but you see them in the public sector with states and cities and municipalities. So why do they inherently fail? Well, they're built on a false premise, and this is where the bait and switch comes in. You see, management wants to pay their workers the least amount they can get away with paying and that's the truth whether you're talking about private companies like AT&T or Google or Microsoft or whatever private company, as well as public sector employees like the federal government or states or local municipalities. School districts or whoever, they all want to pay their employees the least amount they can. One way to achieve this is to defer compensation today for future benefits. You see, when employees organize and they go to their employer and they want to raise, and this is whether they do it individually or through collective bargaining through their union, the employee is generally negotiating from a weaker position. And again, even when they're backed up by a strong union. And so what happens is the more sophisticated management presents a total compensation package to the employee, and they try and defer as much of that compensation into the future as they can. Because the employer is more financially astute and sophisticated and they understand the present value of money, whereas the worker is lured into a false sense of security in being taken care of in the future. And then over time, and as these negotiations grow and perpetuate themselves, more and more benefits in the forms of not only pensions, but things like medical benefits in retirement, those are all promised to the employee to be delivered at a future date when the executives that are negotiating those deals 
know full well that they'll be long gone from the system and won't have to suffer the consequences. And this is done not only by executives of companies, but also by politicians, by mayors and governors, all forms of public service bureaucrats, as well as the very labor union negotiators that are supposed to be representing the employee. That's the first form of bait and switch that happens, and then the second form has to take place to cover up for the original deception. And that form of bait and switch is perpetrated by the actual pension fund. You see, the pension fund is nothing more than an insurance annuity. It's taking current dollars that are paid to it, either in the form individually or a composite from contributions from the employer, potentially matching contributions from the labor union, and then possibly contributions from the individual employee. Those contributions are more or less used to purchase an insurance product like an annuity that is going to guarantee a payout many, many years or decades into the future. Now, the way that's achieved is that that money is supposedly invested in low to moderate risk type investments. Now, generally and historically, that's commercial type real estate that's thought to be stable and viable for long-term capital appreciation and collection of rents. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a totally sound and legitimate investment strategy if, and this is a big if, if the rate of return is realistic. And so that's where that second bait and switch comes in that's perpetrated by these pension funds. They're not currently using a realistic, reliable, dependable rate of return for these pension funds to really meet their obligations and pay out in the future. On average, they need to be generating somewhere in the neighborhood of 7.5% annual returns. That's year in, year out, you know, over the next 25 to 30 years. Well, the problem with that is that right now, 10-year treasuries are only paying 1.8%. And if you look at more riskier base assets, like the stock market, well, even the S&P 500 over the last 16 years has barely generated a 4% return, and that includes dividends. The fact of the matter is that double-digit returns or returns that are near double-digit are just impossible to deliver over the long run. In the U.S., we've been out of a recession for seven years, and yet we can barely grow at 2%. Overall, global economy is barely growing at 3%. And so the reason I call it a bait and switch is for insurance companies to use a 7.5% return as a calculation. It's just completely unrealistic, and it always has been. No economy can consistently, over decades, continue to grow at 8, 9, or 10, or 12%. There's always a pullback. There's always corrections. That's what happened in the 1960s. That's what happened in the 2000s. And that's what's happening today. And so the reason that these defined benefit programs ultimately fail is because the inevitable always occurs. The balance sheet engineering can't make up for the fact that pie-in-the-sky interest rate returns of 7, 8, 9, 12 percent, you know, that's just unrealistic. Real rates of return of something more like 3, 4, 5 percent are what's actually realized. And so that creates a shortfall in the amount of principal that's needed to make that future obligation annuity payment. And so what's required to make up for that shortfall is that more cash needs to be injected into the fund now at the present time. And remember, the employer negotiated the deferred compensation package to begin with because they didn't want to pay money now. They wanted to pay it with future dollars. So that extra money that's needed to prop up the system isn't available. 
It either isn't available because the company hasn't budgeted for it or because if, it, if it's a government organization, they don't have the tax revenue to pay for it. And so what consequently happens is that not only is the needed interest rate not attained, but there's also not enough principal in the fund. So what ends up happening now is you get a double whammy. Not only is the interest rate lower than what was projected, but so is the principal amount that's collecting the interest. And so you get behind the eight ball even farther and then throw in a general recession or a slowdown in the economy and the company's cash flow dries up. That means that they not only can't make the extra payments, but they also miss the regular payments. Or in the case of a government entity, you know, a city like Detroit, where they lose half their population and their tax base dries up and there's just not enough cash flow to cover existing obligations. And so naturally, they're going to miss or underfund the pension program. This snowball effect eventually results in the pension fund going out of business. They become insolvent. Now, while this is very common, it doesn't happen overnight. It may take 20 or 30 or 50 years to occur. And so that's how companies and governments get away with these schemes. I mentioned earlier that General Motors didn't start offering defined pension plans until 1950. Well, do you think it was coincidental that 50 years later in 2008, taxpayers had to come in and prop up the company to keep them from going bankrupt? I don't think so. That's just a natural consequence of the failure of these systems. And so what do you do about it? Well, if you're an older worker and you're locked into a pension, there's really nothing you can do other than pay attention to the financial health and the solvency of not only your company, but also the pension fund that's behind your retirement. Now, if you work for the federal government, don't worry about it. They have a printing press. They're not going to go bankrupt. I'm pretty sure they're going to pay up their debts, even if they do it with dollars that are worthless. But for those of you that work for state or local governments, or particularly those of you that work for private employers that are covered by a pension, pay attention to that financial statement. If it looks like your company or the pension fund is in trouble, then try and exit out of the system. You might want to consider things like taking a lump sum cash payment. I think that's probably the best option. Or just taking an early retirement or an early payout at 55 rather than waiting another decade to get the money at 65 when the system may be totally defunct. Now, for those of you that are younger, I would encourage you not to fall into the pension trap to begin with. Don't negotiate away the value of the net present value of your current compensation for what an employer is going to promise you in the future. It's a trap you don't want to fall into, and the best way to avoid that is to become your own boss. Aaron, thanks for your question. I wish I had better news for you. I really think you're probably between a rock and a hard place. If you want to get in touch with me through my website, I'll be happy to talk to you on the phone and just kick around some ideas. But when your pension fund goes insolvent and gets taken over, you generally have very, very limited options. Thanks again for the question. If you'd like to hear more about my market commentary or my general wealth building principles, please check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. As I said, I think it's important that we understand this because it's going to affect you whether you have a pension fund or not. More and more of these funds are going to fail, and we're going to reach a, a, a cataclysmic point where we're going to have multiple, multiple funds failing, and many of them are going to be government, and you're not going to see the, 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 the white horse come in from D.C. and bail these people out, because you can't. You can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, because once you do it for one, then you got to do it for everybody, and the total number is, is astronomical. And that's going to put a whole bunch of people past their working years with income they had counted on either not being there 
or being significantly lower than what they had planned for. So it's going to have a, an adverse effect on the entire economy. Uh, sometimes people think I'm too optimistic about our economic future because I'm optimistic at all. This is a reality, and, and coupled with companies leaning things out in automation, we're in for a bumpy, multi-decade ride here that a lot of people are going to be really destroyed by. And it's going to be up to us to figure out how to get through it and how to adapt to a completely new way of thinking about money, economics, employment, and government. The old model, it, it, see the whole thing, what John said, right? What John said is, okay, we can run one of these pension funds for about 50 years before it falls on its ass, as long as the pool's big enough. And then it falls apart. Okay, fine. Um, but we've done it with everything. We've done it with Social Security. We've done it with government as a whole. We've done it with, with municipal bonds. We've done it with the federal government's bonds. We've done it with bailouts. We've done it with just every sector of society has basically been funded today and then pieces of, to, of the today's obligations have been punted down the road one form or another and promised in the future. The promises are coming due at the same time that industry is radically shifting. This is This is... Not a good time, but it's not the end of the world as we know it, but it is the end of the world as we know it. Got it? It's Let's talk about something better for the end of the show. Um, I get questions all the time that are one version or the other of, I have a garden and something's wrong with my plants. And generally, it's they're sad, they're weeping, they're yellow, they're not growing fast enough, they have deformed leaves, they're curled leaves, whatever. One way or another. And I decided I would put together an article I put out on my farm's blog, Nine Mile Farm's uh, blog, which is ninemile.farm. Um, and if you want to go straight to the blog, and put forward slash blog. And it's the most recent post, and it's called How to Make Your Veggie Garden Go and Blow the Easy Way. It's a rather long article in spite of the fact that I tried to keep it as brief as possible. So I'm going to give you the synopsis, and you can read more there. And I have specific product recommendations as well. Okay, here's the deal. Your plants in your garden need dozens and dozens, if not 90-some-odd trace minerals to do well. Your garden and your grow beds and anything else you're doing also needs biological activity for many of those components to get into the plants. You can test your soil. Like I said, there's phosphorus there. But that may not be immediately bioavailable phosphorus. There may not be enough of a life web in your soil for that plant to be able to get to the phosphorus or to get to the zinc or to get to the magnesium or manganese or boron or what have you. But of all the things your plants need, there is a, a relatively short list of the ones that are most often deficient in gardens, specifically new gardens for a season or two or in situations where you have excessive rain or it's a colder than usual spring and the biology is just not getting going. These are NPK which is nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. That's what all your broad-spectrum fertilizers, organic or conventional, are, are made of. And then calcium and magnesium, and then iron and zinc. Okay, And I put calcium and magnesium together and iron and zinc together because just like you, plants generally need calcium and magnesium together in the right available ratios Okay, to use either one. And they need iron and zinc the same way. Now, again, there's a whole bunch of other trace minerals 
that, that plants need. So I'm not saying this is all they need. I'm saying that if you fix this 90% of the time, your sad plants get happy. And if you kind of do this preemptively, they never get sad. Okay, so we can worry about all this organic stuff. We can worry about all the permaculture stuff, and we can try to just say let nature do it, or we can get life going in our gardens, and then we can transition over time to more and more fertility. So, starting out with nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, I've recommended this product before. I believe in a balanced fertilizer. I don't things like like things like five ten five. I don't care if it's conventional, organic, whatever. Dr. Earth Premium Gold Organic All-Purpose Fertilizer is 4-4-4. That means it's four parts of each, so it's balanced. Got it? It's also then, um, what would it be, uh, 82% inert matter. Because it's four parts, and then that's not like, it's not like saying four spoons of this, four spoons of this, and four spoons of that. It's the totality. So when you see something that's like 5-5-5, it would be 85%. Water, other stuff, inert matter, dirt, whatever. Okay, so it's it's not like you get what I'm saying. It's not like when you're mixing a cake. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in there, and that so one 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 is really really low. Four 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 is pretty mod, you know, pretty mild. So this is a mild general broad spectrum fertilizer, but it's immediately bioavailable, which means it's a liquid form. You mix it up, you dump it in the ground or on the plant, and the plant goes yummy. I can have it right now. That alone often fixes everything. I also recommend a product called Garrett Juice. Garrett Juice is much more than just a fertilizer, but as a fertilizer, it's 1.5, 2.2 by 1.5. And I recommend you use it as a foliar feed and kind of tonic for your plants. You mix it in a sprayer, you spray it on your plants. You can do this weekly, you can do it every other week, you can do it monthly, all based on what your plants need. You do those two things, and more than half your problems will go away. Additionally, I, I kind of skipped this part, but in the article I say I don't care what you've heard about wood mulch. Mulch your freaking garden with wood chips. Not painted wood chips, natural wood chips. Preferably something that you can buy in bulk. It costs less, and it's you know it's not going to be one you know uniform thing. It's going to be all different types of trees shredded up. Two to four inches deep. I don't care what you've heard about nitrogen binding up. It's bullshit. When you have four inches of wood chips sitting on a soil level layer, the only nitrogen that can bind up is the very thin place where the two meet each other. Now, if you till it in the soil, you've got a different situation. So top dressing with mulch. The next need is calcium and magnesium. Okay, And again, the plants need them together. When you have magnesium and calcium deficiencies, the, 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 you may not know which one you have because it looks a lot the same, but calcium usually have the young leaves curl, um, you have shoots that look like they're scorching. They almost look like they're burned or spotting on young leaves. Poor growth. Growth, you have leaf tip burn, stunted roots, and you have fruit that doesn't look right. Magnesium can also do a lot of the same thing, but the main symptom is what's called chlorosis, which is your leaves start to turn yellow. Um, and with magnesium, the symptoms generally appear on the lower leaves first. So if you see lower leaves turning yellow and the upper leaves are still green, then usually that's a magnesium deficiency, but not always. Okay, And if the plants get a lot more sunlight, they may be more susceptible to this. So if they get a lot of sunlight, since these two deficiencies prevent the plant from doing what's called transpiring, that's where it pulls water through the leaves and evaporates out of the leaves, especially the plant's sweating, to deal with too much heat, to deal with too much intensity from the sun. So since that's affected, you get wilting, okay? Um, 
the, the product for that is a product called Hydro Organics Earth Juice CalMag Plant Food. And in the article, everything's linked to. You can get any good calcium magnesium supplement, but I recommend you use a liquid product. Again, it's immediately available to your plants. Follow the instructions on the label. Give it a drench, either when you plant it or when you're taking corrective action. And then do a foliar feed with it, which is a smaller, smaller amount, mixed with water, sprayed on the plant once every two weeks, once a month, whatever frequency you think you need. And if you're doing the garret juice, you just put it all in a sprayer together. One spray every two weeks, and your life will be good. And as the plants get healthier, you can move it to a month, to every other month. You're backing off. You're not going to stay on therapy forever. The next need is iron and zinc. What does iron and zinc deficiency look like? It's leaf chlorosis. This is where the plants turn yellow leaves. The veins stay green. It will start on the tips of the new growth of the plant, eventually work its way to older leaves. So it's like iron and zinc tend to go the other way. So instead of starting on the lower leaves and going up, they start on the upper leaves and go down. But it's basically the same symptom. And a lot of people that are new are going to misdiagnose it. So <clears throat> there's a product called Liquinox Iron Zinc Chelated Solution. It's my favorite product for this need. But if you have an iron zinc chelated solution, that means that, again, it's, it's in a certain way that it's a bioavailable thing. You don't have to worry about it being broken down. You don't have to worry about the plants creating exudates. You put it with the plant. The plant uses it now. Okay? So you want something like that. If you have those, most of your problems will go away. Now, as I said, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that plants need. I recommend a product called Azomite. Okay? Azomite is a highly mineralized complex ore, silica ore. It's mined in Utah. There was this ancient deposit left by a volcanic eruption that filled a nearby seabed about 30 million years ago. It's a naturally rich soil remineralizer for plants, uh, as well as a feed ingredient for animals. People feed this to animals. Um, it contains more than 70 trace minerals, and many of those have been depleted in soils worldwide. So, in the end, any product marked azomite is the same source. It has It's a trademark name from that source. So it doesn't matter if Joe Spooties or anybody's, it has to be from that source to use that trademark name. So the question then is how much do you need, not which product do you buy. I have a link in the article where you can see exactly what I'm talking about. But what I like to do, if you have an established bed and you're kind of treating plants, when you put your transplant in, take a, a, just a pinch of this stuff and sprinkle it in. If you're planting like green beans and you have a furrow, before you put your green beans in, just sprinkle a, a sprinkle like, like, like a salt line down the furrow. Um, but when you're retooling your beds, pull all your mulch back and lay down a thick, not a thick layer, a thin layer everywhere, and maybe even till it in just the top layer, put your mulch back and go back to your next seasonal rotation. That would be a, a good way to do it. I don't do that all the time. If my, if my garden's happy, um, I'm fine. Another product you can use is called green sand. When I put a new bed in, I put per four by eight bed a 50 pound bag of green sand turned into that new, that new bed. Uh, no matter what I do, I always turn soil, mix soil, whatever, when I establish a new bed, and then I try to do as little mixing, tilling as possible for there for the rest of my life. So green sand, I don't use over and over and over again. Azomite, I don't use over and over again. Once it's been applied and enough to get it into the bed, you really shouldn't need it again. But, you know, when you pull back your mulch, if you want to, go ahead. I also recommend that you find any good quality organic um, uh, 
uh, solid fertilizer you can find. I like a product called MicroLife. It's available out of Houston. And you do that once or twice a season whenever your mulch is pulled back so it's in contact with the soil. And it has a lot of other great stuff in it. But if you do the azomite, the, uh, the iron and zinc supplementation, the calcium and magnesium supplementation, you use a good quality product um, like uh, Earth Juice, um, uh, Dr. Earth, I'm sorry, uh, broad spectrum fertilizer, and you spray your plants with garret juice, you're gonna, all that sad stuff, 90% of it just will go away. There's other things that can happen. You have a boron deficiency, you could have a particular pest that's causing problems, etc. There's a lot of other things you should do. I believe, I, I use, uh, either dried or liquid molasses whenever I, you know, pull back mulch and, and, and retool a bed. Uh, that sugar feeds the soil organisms. Uh, I like to make my own compost teas because like a product like Garrett Juice is made with compost tea, but it's sitting in a bottle. It's basically what's left after the compost tea has been you know, mixed up, and it, it's not really a living product, but it provides all the things those living things need. If you've ever heard this before, the reason chickens eat eggs is a chicken, has a, a chicken egg has everything necessary to make a chicken. So when you use a compost tea product like Garrett Juice off the shelf, there's not a lot of life in there. But but the, the the multiplication of the organisms and then their dead bodies feed the existing soil life and encourage the existing soil life. So when you make a fresh compost tea and apply that, well now now you've got living organisms going down. Humic acid. There's all kinds of things you can do to improve the quality of a garden bed. But if you're sitting there this year looking at sick plants, you have all this work into it. If you'll do this regimen. The, the Dr. Earth uh, fertilizer, the Garrett juice, the CalMag supplement, the Iron Zinc supplement, and Azomite. Now, the problem with the Azomite is you can't really pull the plant out put it in the hole. What you do is you pull your mulch back and sprinkle some Azomite around it and water it in. You water it in with your fertilizer. All right. The other thing you might want to do is a little sprinkle of a good quality um, solid fertilizer, good uh, you know dry fertilizer that's an organic fertilizer. Recover that, but use the liquid fertilizer too. The, the, the dry fertilizer is just like a time-release capsule, and the liquid fertilizer, the liquid supplements, they're like getting an intravenous injection. It goes straight in and it does its job. This is really important when your plants are sick. The best thing to do is as soon as you see the plant looking sick at all, it just starts to look a little unhappy. Let's fix it. The sicker it gets, the harder it is to bring back. This happens big time. Squash, cucumbers, peppers, tomatoes. These guys have these problems all the time. And yes, I can crush up an eggshell and give it to my tomato, etc. But if I have bad-looking fruit now, it takes time for that eggshell to break down. That's a long-term system play. This is first aid. So please see it that way. Um, some final notes on this, and I talk about this in the article. Um, a lot of people mix up special soils. You get all this stuff, green sand and azomite, or maybe you make Mel's Mix from Square Foot Gardening. You get great compost. You mix some peat in there. You get some perlite in there, some uh, expanded shale. You make this beautiful soil, and you pick it up, and it looks gorgeous. It smells gorgeous. It feels good. Wonderful. You put it in a garden bed. You plant your plants, and then they don't thrive. You're wondering what's going on. Okay. Again, the soil needs a life web established. And it will happen. It will come. But the, the fungi need to be established. The beneficial nematodes need to be established. And the plants need to get involved. And the plants need to do what's called exudate. 
So an exudate is basically like cookies and cakes. Okay? And what happens is a plant says, I need some boron. So it goes squirt, and it squirts out a little bit of sugar out of its root somewhere. That sugar, almost like a plant's intelligent, attracts little soil organisms that know how, or just by their very actions, make boron bioavailable to the plant. Basically, they poop boron. So a little soil organism comes over, num, 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 eats the exudate, and poops out its waste. And in its waste is boron in the form the plant can actually get to versus boron that's in the soil the plant can't get to. So it eats that. Now, if the plant's sad and it's not doing its job because it's deficient in iron, zinc, calcium, magnesium, potassium, uh, etc., it's got its own problems. It has no time to be pooping out an exudate so that this organism can come get it. That's what's going on. So we have to get that plant healthy. Now, plants do create exudates when they're stressed, when they're unhappy, when they're healthy, when they're unhealthy, when they're sad, when they're sick. And they create it above ground on their leaves. They also create sugars. What do you think happens then? Insects go, aha, this is going to taste good because it's got sugar. And it's stressed so I can go eat it. So pests will predominantly first attack weaker plants that are in the stress state, creating above ground versus below ground exudates. So the problem with these super soils is not that there's anything wrong with them, but if we put them in and we've just assumed because it's all this good stuff, that everything's supposed to be chugging along, and we put this in this year, it hasn't been there that long, there's not worms in it, there's not fungi in it, all this stuff's not going on, and it's cold, and even if there's a lot of life in there, it's asleep, it's not waking up yet. And the plant's just going, I, it's almost like being in a desert, staked out with your hands and feet, And somebody puts a stake in your right hand and a bottle of water in your left hand. You can see it, it's right there, but you can't get it in your mouth, right? And since a plant can't use hands, you would need someone to come along and open the water bottle and pour it in your mouth and take the steak and cut it up and put it in your mouth so you could eat it, so you could survive. That's where the plant's at. All this stuff's in there. Most soil, even bad soil, there's enough iron in, in a teaspoon of that soil to feed the plant for a cubic foot for a hundred years, but it can't get it. It needs very small amounts of it, but it can't get it. So what we want is healthy plants while the ecosystem develops. So when people say it's too many inputs or whatever, you're not thinking the right way. You're thinking about, and I'll tell you what, if you live in a place with great, healthy, happy, fertile soils, and you don't do any of this stuff, and all your plants like look good, don't go do it. Don't go do it. But the number one place this happens is really bad, crappy, existing soils. People build raised beds, get fill, put it in there, good or bad, and then the plant just goes, bleh. And they, you know, they like get frustrated. They go over to their fence, they take a screwdriver and make a hole in the ground, pop a couple uh, squash seeds in just raw dirt and do nothing. And the squash plant goes, boom, it comes up the fence and it grows beautifully. And then there's this great garden that they've worked their ass off for, and the squash in there is like, I'm sad. I don't want to go. The, 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 the ground by your fence has grassroots in it. It's got activity in it. You've started a brand new thing. You got to think about it this way. You got to stock the pond. You got to stock the pond. You've got this garden bed with all this great physical material in it, but now you need biology to take over. Sometimes it works really good the first year and it just goes and blows. Sometimes you got to kind of help it along. And there's all these great things we can do. Again, Mulching, composting, um, you know, uh, weed teas. 
You just pick a bunch of weeds, throw them in water, and, and, uh, and let them soak, and then use that water. All these things we can do. But if you want to get things, you, you, if you don't want your, your wasted, supplement what the plants freaking need. That, that's all I'll say on that, and hopefully that wraps that one up. With that, I want to remind you, if you like this show and you want to support us, because I think the information I just gave you there on gardening, if you have a crappy garden, that's going to save you lots of money this year alone. Consider saving even more money by getting discounts on all kinds of great stuff that you're probably going to buy anyway eventually by joining the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And remember, first responders, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, all of you guys qualify for a discount, whether you're active, duty, or prior service. Email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. If you go 48 hours when you email me something like that and you don't hear back, email me again. Something's wrong. I do not wait that long to answer things like that. Um, I have found people in the junk mail folder um, two weeks later because I don't check the junk mail folder every day. Um, that's why the TSPC is really important. But if you don't hear from me, something's wrong. I try to stay on customer service like crazy. Next up, hey, all the stuff I linked to in that great article is linked to our Amazon account. But if you don't want any of that stuff, or you're going to shop on Amazon this weekend, how about doing me a favor? Just seriously, do me a favor. When you go to Amazon.com to shop, don't go to Amazon. Go to TSPAZ, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Just type that in. One less, I'm asking you to do less work. One letter less than Amazon. Type it in. You'll end up at Amazon. Buy your stuff. We'll get credit for your business. And there's you know almost anything you could want in the world today you can get on Amazon. I've needed something all week and I haven't had time to go get it. I'm like, dummy, check Amazon. Look at that. It's on Prime for the same price. Yeah, one day I'll learn to follow my own advice. But if you go to TSPAS, and it's easy to remember, TSPAS, right, you can help support the work we do at uh, the Survival Podcast for no money out of your pocket just buying the stuff you're going to buy anyway. And and that's really come on a lot since I started, and I really appreciate all of you that are willing to do that. Hey, set a bookmark, put a favorite in your phone, whatever, and just whenever you're buying from Amazon, consider supporting us by using our link. Next up, consider supporting everybody in the Survival Podcast when you're going to buy something or use a service uh, by going to tspbiz.com. That's our business directory right on our main site. tspbiz.com just redirects to it. And uh, it's the place to find members of the community and be found if you're an entrepreneur in this community. And you can be listed on it for as little as $5 a month. And then you can upgrade to other features if you want to. But our featured supporter today is Frontier Tactical, the official home of the Warlock multiple caliber system. Multiple caliber system, the Warlock retrofits AR-15s to allow modularity and fast caliber changes with over 60 calibers available. In the AR-15 platform, you can unlock your AR today. Check them out in the TSP business directory. This product is cool, guys. You should go look at it just to see it. I've got one here um, that I have on, on one of my uppers. Uh, or on one of my lowers. I got the upper and everything from uh, Nate over at Frontier Tactical. And I can turn a little bar, a half a turn, or a little uh, collar, half a turn, and pull off my 5.56 barrel, boom, grab my 300, uh, 300 blackout, put it on, clip, boom, I've got 300 blackout. Oh, my God, it's that fast. Bam, pop that off. And my, uh, my ultimate Wildcat, 17.223, boom, bam, on. And all of those use standard 223 magazines. Same bolt, same everything. And I can have three calibers and swap them out in less time than it took me to explain it. And that means that I could actually save a lot of money on multiple AR builds. It, it, it starts to pay you back on your second 
uh, caliber, and it just gets better from there. And it's cool as shit. You got to check it out. Uh, Frontier Tactical. Dot com and they are let me tell you something about the guys running Frontier Tactical. These guys are the salt of the earth. They're freaking good guys. They believe in what they're doing. They're working their ass off. They are producing an incredible product right here in America. Check them out again, FrontierTactical.com. They are good friends to the survival podcast community. Trust me, folks. And most people in directory are. They wouldn't be there. Uh, last today, um, I have our song of the day. And um, it's an interesting song. It's by Jackson Brown, but it's not an old song. It's actually a relatively new song. I think it was released like two years ago or something like that, like 2014. And it's called Standing in the Breach, and it's the title track off of his album. And a lot of times when bands come out that are, you know, 70s bands, 70s artists with new songs today, I'm not generally fond of them. I'm like, you know... Homer Simpson listening to Bachman Turner Overdrive. If you ever saw that episode, no, 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 no new crap. Play, 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 uh, play. Taking care of business, and they start. They find they start playing. He goes, no, no, get to the working overtime part. We don't want to wait for the, like. I, I like the, like these bands that we know well for that reason. Jackson Brown's one of the exceptions. He's continued to make incredible music now from the uh, going back almost to the sixties, but seventies, eighties, nineties. 2000 up to 10, and even into today. That's a long time. And he's an incredible artist. I saw him like two years ago. He opened for Jimmy Buffett. I'm an ultimate Jimmy Buffett fan. He was better than Jimmy. He still sounded like he did 40 years ago. I mean, just unbelievable. This guy's still making this amazing music. Standing in the Breach is you know, a song about how damaged our planet is and how it could be more than it is. And it comes from Jackson's, uh, Jackson Brown's, you know, viewpoint. But I think it could be any of our viewpoints. What about what we just heard about pension funds? How, how many things are going to fail in the future? Um, and here's, you know, one of the uh, stanzas from the song. And the and though the earth may tremble and cast our works aside, and through and though our efforts resemble the fluctuating tide. We rise and fall with the trust and belief that love redeems us each and bend our backs and hearts together standing in the breach. And a lot of times I feel that we, the preppers of the world, we, the people involved in regenerative agriculture and permaculture in the world, we, the people that believe in our rights, our innate human rights, are constantly standing in the breach. For those that aren't familiar with guns, the breach, well... That's the, that's the business part of the gun where the round gets loaded. So when the gun goes off, if you were in the breach, you're going out the barrel in little bitty pieces. I mean, you could also call this probably standing at the muzzle, but standing in the breach worked better for the song. And I know this song won't be everybody's cup of tea in where it's coming from, but there's a lot to learn from it in the understanding that no matter how we got here, no matter whose fault it is, we're the ones that have to deal with it. We have to do something about it. Here's another one. The unpaid debts of history, the open wounds of time, the laws of human nature always tugging from behind. I want to think that the earth can heal and that people might still learn how to meet this world's true challenges and that the course we're on could turn. 
and that the course we're on could turn. I'm repeating it. It's not repeated in the song. And that the course we're on could turn. And here's my view. We can't wait for the course that everybody else is on to turn. That's why we're, that's why we're into preparedness. We are making the adjustments now. We are seeing the eventual catastrophes now. We understand the middle class is being eroded. Not people are falling out of the middle class, but the middle class itself is just sliding. And what it even means to be middle class, it's meaning less and less and less, rather than more and more and more as it did for about 50 years of the good times. Now the debts are coming due. And the advance of technology is eliminating jobs. And the entire paradigm in every major facet in life, from education to medicine to agriculture, is shifting. Some for the good and some for the bad. And even what's for the good is going to roll over a lot of people because they want to hold on to the past out of some misguided attempt to keep things the way they are. Life is not static. Life is never static. As I tell you all the time, you are on a sliding scale. You're either moving toward liberty or toward tyranny. You can't stand still, but nothing in life stands still. Nothing in life stands still. So I say, the hell with it. Let us stand in the breach and let us make a difference for ourselves, for our children, and for their children. Because if we don't, no one else is going to. And with that... This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And though the earth may tremble and our foundations crack, we will all assemble and we will build them back and rush to save the lives remaining. Still within our reach and Try to put our world together Standing in the breach So many live in poverty While others live as kings Though some may find peace In the acceptance of all that living brings I will never understand However they've prepared How one life may be struck down And another life be spared and Though the earth may tremble And cast our works aside And though our efforts resemble Fluctuating tide We rise and fall With the trust and belief That love redeems us each And bend our backs And hearts together Standing in the breeze You don't know why It's such a far cry From the world this world could be For the world you wish to see You don't know how it'll happen now After all that's come undone But you know the change the world needs now 
Everyone. 